Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I am so happy to have in the studio with me Era D. Matthews. Yay. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> um, and so I feel very formal using your full name, but I want to keep saying it so that everyone, when they go to grab Bread and Circus, your latest book of poems, they see it right there. Um, but do you mind if I call you D for I the do program? Not Is that mind okay? if you call me D. We okay. met we <laughs> met each other as T and D, so we and, should continue the tradition. But, but what do, do you go by, D? Or you know, it's, it's funny. I took that nickname probably back in two thousand. I always had the nickname Dee Dee as a kid. Oh. So that was my nickname growing up. And then in around 2002, when I decided to move out and to open mics and try my hand at poetry in public. So not, it was 2002? It was around 2002. Okay. I adopted Dee. Um, I kind of uh, excavated it, if you will, from the ruins. And I said, oh, I'll bring that back just in case someone has a problem saying my name. But it was mostly because I wanted to maintain some degree of anonymity just in case I bombed at the open mic. So I just put <laughs> D down on the sheet <laughs> and it caught on. I mean, everyone knows me as D. Uh, some know me as Era, which is fine, but most people know me as D, and it's just a nickname. It's a beloved nickname for me. I love the nickname. I took it when I was afraid of being fully who I was, or when I was afraid that it would be too difficult for someone to say my actual name, so I tried to make it easier for them. But I've kind of come full circle where I'm just... Uh, I introduce myself to new people now as Era. Well, yeah. So but when I you, go back and forth. So when you... Cause you came. You were here at Michigan. That's how we met. Exactly. For some years, you were in Detroit before that. And yeah. is that when you started the open mic? Was in that Detroit. Was. Yeah. With the Detroit poets. I did. The good, uh, With a group of Detroit poets who have all um, gone on to the page in some way. Most of them have gone on to the page in some way. And uh, you know, there was Vivi Francis, there was yeah. Matthew Olsman, there was Francine Harris, there's Nandi Comer, who's now Nandi Michigan's po- poet yes. laureate, you know? Yeah. Um so there's and I so many be of us. I'm surprised if Francine was gonna be the same in Texas. Soon. Oh my goodness. Is that where Francine is now? I feel like she I can't is she's in Houston. Figure yeah. out where every okay, okay. <laughs> she's in Houston. Yeah, she's just gonna take over. <laughs> I hope so. He's going to be so. president. Get out of here. I hope so. <laughs> Many years. Francine J. Harris yeah. and I were talking here. And I, I loved that she didn't capitalize her any parts of her name. Exactly. I don't know if Francine's still doing I mean, it's interesting. These parts of ourselves that mm-hmm. are us and some stay forever mm-hmm. um, and some come back. Exactly. And some are in different moments and for different people. Exactly. Eponymous. Your mm-hmm. poem. Mm-hmm. Would you mind reading that? Yeah. Could we, since we're talking names? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't usually, I don't usually ask, so I won't keep asking. And I will say that for the first part of reading the book, I just restrained myself and I was like, "Do not dog ear a page." <laughs> and then I was like, "Don't do anything." And then, and then I gradually was like, "You can put some pink slips in." And then I was like, "Do not put any pink slips in unless you think you can't get back to this page." It was just, I love your book, Thank Bread you. and Circuses. Thank you. It's, it's Thank you so much. There. Thank you. Etymology. Because my mother named me after a child born still. To a godmother I've never met, I took another way to be known. 
something easier to remember, inevitable to forget, something that rolls over the surface of thrush because I grew tired of saying, no, it's pronounced. Now I tire of not conjuring that ghost I honor. Say it with me. Era. Rhymes with Sarah. Sarah from the Latin meaning, a woman of high rank, which also means whenever I ask anyone to hold me on their lips, I sound like what I almost am. Hear me out. I'm not a D or a river charging through working class towns where union folk cog wedge for plots and barely any house at all where bosses mangle ethnic phonemes and nobody corrects one word because the check's in the mail. So let's end this classist pretense where names don't matter and language is too heavy a lift. My E is silent. Like most people should be, the consonant is sonorant, is a black woman, or one might say the spine. I translate to wind in a country known for its iron. Imply lioness of God in Jesus' tongue, Mean apex predator, free of known enemy, fierce enough to harm or fast enough to run. All I'm saying is what I've already said. The tongue has no wings to flee what syllables it fears. The mouth is no womb, has no right to consume what it did not make. Thanks. You're welcome. Era D. Matthews. <laughs> You know, what, well, what is it? And I, etymology, of course. I think I've already mixed up my words today and oh said goodness. the wrong word. And you were so it's a human so moment. kind to just know, know what I meant. It's quite all right. <laughs> just, it was close enough to be honest with you. I knew exactly what you meant. Close said. enough for government work. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, it was all good. Oh. Be easy on yourself. Human moments. Human moments. Yeah. Full of them, right? Always. Or at least, yeah. It, Always. So my, we can't get away from them my as currency. long as we're confined to our vessels. You yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And trying to appreciate, in good ways, the vessel, too. Yeah. You know, like, thankful, got this far. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. More left, hopefully, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to read your bio so that I don't forget. Okay. Because it's a convention of living writers. <laughs> so we're going to go back to the back cover. This is a beautiful book. So hopefully, hopefully folks go get your hands on this book when you go to Literati tonight at 630. Era D. Matthews is reading there um, with Dr. Ruby Tapia. Tapia. Yeah. A great friend of mine. She's fantastic. Oh, that's great. And yeah. so will it be a Q&A, more of a conversation, or will we're, you be... I haven't seen Ruby in so long. I feel like we're going to have a conversation, and we're going <laughs> to mix in poems into the conversation, just like you and I, Dutty. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's the best way to do it. Yes, yeah. And I bet there will be a lot of hugging, right? When I hope so. Her. I really hope yeah. so. <laughs> So, so that's Literati tonight, everyone, 6.30 p.m. Um, Dee's going to head there after the radio. Um, so so you should do. You should, too. And so here's the bio in the back of Bread and Circus. Era D. Matthews is Philadelphia's current poet laureate. Her first collection of poems, the critically acclaimed Simulacra, won the 2016 Yale series of Younger Poets Award. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Gulf Coast, VQR, The Best American Poetry, American Poet, Lit Hub, Harvard Review, and elsewhere.
Matthews holds a BA in economics from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as an MFA from the Helen Zell Writers Program and an MPA from the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy, both at the University of Michigan, Go Blue, mm-hmm. a Pew Fellow. She is a professor and co-directs the poetry program at Bryn Mawr College. Um, Yes. I'm so glad you're, you're here in town, Dee. I'm really glad to be back. Yeah. It feels like whenever I come back to Michigan, I realize how much I loved Michigan, you know, um, and not just the university, but just the area, like walking downtown Ann Arbor was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so many, so, so much stuff has changed in the last, I mean, six years. I've only been gone six years, but it's a lot seems like it's changed. And... Uh, it's just always lovely to feel like you're back home. And that's what this feels like to me. It just feels like I'm back home. And I feel like we're actually in your living room just talking, having, <laughs> having tea. Oh, that's what I should have brought, a teapot. It's in, all good. Instead of the Brita water. The Brita water is really wonderful, though. You know, on a hot day, right? <laughs> a hot day. It is really surprisingly hot. It's hotter here than it is in Philadelphia, which is odd. Which is odd because Philly can be a hot city. Philly can be very hot, but when I left, it was very cool. <laughs> and so I came here and it's... Weather report. Piping hot. <laughs> Weather report from Living Writers, right. Poets Day, uh, <laughs> giving the weather. Um, I, I'm so glad that you said this also feels like home, mm-hmm. Dee, and because I felt maybe I was presumptuous to be like, welcome back to your home in Michigan. Like, cause do you feel like you have many homes? Like, I do. Is New Jersey home? Yeah. With D- Detroit, Ann Arbor, Philly? Yeah. Um, For me, home is where love is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I've never, I think because I have um, some sort of weird relationship with home, kind of a dysfunctional relationship with the idea of home, I've created a new idea of what home is for me. So for me, home has, has probably in my recent years, in my adult years, just felt very much like a place where love is where I find love here. There's love in Philadelphia. There's love in Jersey. My mother and my sister still live in Jersey. So there's, you know, there there are homes there. But all of those homes represent different things. So Detroit and Ann Arbor represent very different things for me than Philadelphia does, represent different things for me than New Jersey does. And I consider them all home. Um, I feel a part of something larger in those spaces. Does that make sense? It does. It definitely and, does. Um, and I feel as if there's community in those spaces still, you know, mm-hmm. like the lovely thing about coming back was that, you know, you reached out to me and then I get to see friends at the bookstore today. And then I was in Detroit and I got a chance to go jogging and it's lovely because it's a flat surface. Philadelphia is very hilly and you have to be a very skilled <laughs> more, runner. More cobblestones. <laughs> right? cobblestones. It's some tricky terrain. <laughs> and so you have to be a pretty skilled runner there. And it's just like I came back to Michigan. And I was like, oh. I just sighed. It just felt like a sigh of relief. <sighs> and um yeah, so I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy to be in this space that feels like home. And I know that I can make home wherever I am as long as there's love and there's community, but it feels good to be in a familiar space. Yeah. I know this this one of your homes does does miss you. Dee. Yeah. And I miss this. I do. So Sicily, what's 
what's going on with Sicily? Is this yeah. part of your family story? It is. Could you do? Yeah. Should so, we go to Sicily for well, the moment? Let's go to mind. Sicily because that's going to be home too. You know, so um, a few years back, I decided my mother is mixed race. My mother is Sicilian, half Sicilian, and my grandmother was from Alabama. My mother's father was significantly older than my grandmother, um, and he came over through Ellis Island, the turn of the century, from Monte La Prey, Sicily. He couldn't find work there. They came, he came over, he had a whole nother family, but he also fell in love with my grandmother. So they started to have a family. Story. Um, and my mother came into being, and, but I don't know anything about my Sicilian roots. So my thought is, make a home. That's where the love is, right? So make a home there. So that's what I'm doing. I'm building a writing residency in Troina, which is across the island from Monte La Prey. And I found a lovely property. And soon, probably by 2024, we'll have that off the ground. The house is called Virtue and Labor, but it's in Latin. So (laughs) Um, I'm pretty excited. It'll give me a space. It'll give me a home space in order to find out about uh, the folks, my ancestors that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. My grandfather, his father, his mother. And when did when did you when was it part of the family story? Because in Bread and Circus, the kings in Scotland are part of the fabric of the family story there. Yeah. And so that comes from my uh, father's side. But the Italian comes from my mother's side. And so I wanted to explore more deeply that side of the family that felt closer, just closer Mm -hmm. in proximity, just in terms of time. That timeline is a little bit closer than the folks from my father's side. And so I said, well, let's do some research there. And that probably happened about three years ago when I decided I wanted to do that. And I did. And is your mom so happy as well that you're finding these stories? She's ecstatic because I'm finding the stories that she... And family. And family that she didn't know about. I found Italian relatives who've been interacting with me and emailing me and telling me, oh, we were wondering. We were always wondering. And so there's no need to wonder any longer. It's just a matter of doing some research and getting to know who I am more deeply and who my kids are, who my mom is. That'd be a great gift for her. She's 73 Mm. and she still doesn't know. She's young. She's She's young. young. Yeah, she's young. Um, Today on Living Writers, Era D. Matthews is here. Dear D is here in the studio, bread and circus, out this May. So it's hot off the presses, really, with Scribner. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Reverend Andrew behind the glass, and we'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're just in time. Today, Era D. Matthews is here in the studio. Her latest book of poems, Bread and Circus. Um, D, thanks for choosing today's songs for today's um, program, too. Oh, for sure. Um, what did... What did we just hear? What was I know we started with the killers. We started with the <laughs> we started with the song Boy by the Killers and then during this last segment we went into Local God by Panic at the Disco. <laughs> Which is such a great name. <laughs> it's a great name for a group. Oh. I just have the most eclectic taste as I, I wouldn't say it's the most eclectic. There are a lot of people who have eclectic musical taste. I am in that camp. I just mm. have eclectic musical taste. I like a lot of different things from bluegrass to hip hop to Irish folk music to I mean I just listen to um, Italian music yeah to Bossa Nova I mean just take me across the globe South African house music like I love everything so when the book was coming out I decided to make a playlist on um, Spotify on Spotify a bread and circus playlist and on the playlist I wanted there to be songs that had some echo with the book or had some sort of even if it was a quiet conversation had some sort of were in conversation with the book in some way and so I think there's probably like 60 songs on that playlist at this point I keep adding songs as I hear them I just got hip to a new new to me uh, singer Willie Wright and he has a song called Right On For The Darkness and I was like um yes <laughs> I'm add that into the Bread Circus playlist so now it's just a playlist that I enjoy listening to yeah. yeah. What was the song then, the song that we just heard, The Panic at the Disco? That How was, was its conversation with Bread and Circus? That was Local God. And the song is really about um, someone who someone who has uh, notoriety kind of in their local circles. For mm. Not necessarily anyone else knows them, but the idea of a local God reminded me of, of a phrase that I have in the book called a mundane God. Mm. And uh, it just hit me. I was like, I'm going to put this. And I listened to the lyrics over and over again. I'm very big on lyrics. I listened to the lyrics over and over again. And I said, oh, I'm going to put this in here. Because there's a, a part of the whole idea of a local God that reminded me of my father. Because he was so, you know, he was, uh, he was so tortured. He was a tortured soul. But he was, he was very strong and he was very much an authoritarian in the house. We were all terrified of him. But... He was very much an authoritarian, and I thought about the idea that I think we apotheosized him. You know, when my sister and I were little, we just kind of looked up and thought of him as a god and just kind of did whatever it is that he told us to do, even if what he was telling us to do was not entirely legal or um, ethically just or fair or um, ethical at all. And so we, we just kind of listened and so the idea of the local God came into play. Yeah. yeah. So Panic at the Disco it is. I was wondering if that, yeah, yeah your father is a big presence mm-hmm. in, in the book. Family is. Family yeah. is definitely. Yeah. Um, but within the scope of the book, um, at the very beginning, because there's, there's a couple of photos in the book, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love how the book has no bounds. Like, like um, the way it's using the page the text layout angles um playing with your i think you know your background from economics is coming <laughs> into play and it definitely does and your research because you went to the uh Baudelaire library mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. um 
and just visually, legacy costs, the way that we see um, the graph starting to be laid out and the words um, insisting on being on the page and in their own spacing as well. Um, and another graph, like an Adam Smith gets in there very early as the, I'm trying to think with this. And could you tell us a little bit about the, the epigraph? Too? Yeah. yeah. So Juvenal was a Roman poet, and uh, he was also a, a, a satirist, and he talked a bit about in his work, or there's this famous phrase in his work about bread and circuses, and the idea is that the folks in power can hook and switch you, right? They can make you look away from what's actually happening by offering you food, or entertainment. And um, the idea of the distraction that's inherent in Bread and Circus kind of had me thinking about the distraction that's inherent in our daily lives from everything. You know, like we go to work because we have to, we have to pay bills, we want to eat. We get on the social, we get on social media because it's entertainment and it numbs us to what's actually happening in the world. So this idea of the Bread and, the, uh, bread and Circus feels like it's a timeless idea. And as I was writing this book, I I didn't know what a title should be. The original title I had was Mundane Gods, which I'm really glad I didn't go with. Um, but, but so interesting because that was something that we had already just talked. about. Exactly. So it's a present. It's some a presence here that w- we exactly, need to address. Exactly. And so uh, as I let my son, my son is one of my first readers. He's 22. He just graduated University of Penn and he's off to Harvard's Divinity School in the fall. He got a presidential fellowship. He's... <gasps> He's doing great things, but he's really very much into poetry. Loves poetry. So this is Wes. This is Wes. Who was poet laureate. Who was a youth poet laureate of Philadelphia for a time. Yeah. He's really super into poetry. So as he read the first draft, he was like, okay, mom, so this book is about commodity and um, spectacle. And I said, yeah, exactly. And he's like, you know, I would pull in juvenile. And bread and circus, the idea of the bread and circus. And damn if he wasn't right. It was absolutely the right thing to do. And he so. was like, just casually. I just casually drop that. He was like, and, and then you should also name it bread and circus. So that's, I mean, I just followed his lead. And you did. I mean, and you, you give him the shout I out do in give the, the acknowledgement. So he does. Yeah. Um, but that, because that's amazing, because the, the, what comes, the first words, I think that's why I wanted to go back to Juvenile, because I didn't want to think that Adam Smith was, you know, your words need to be coming before that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. there's like the symbolic um, quality of what comes first in this particular book, Bread and Circus. So it's so interesting to find like the way you want us to have a way in as we're walking in. Exactly. I try and build with every book. I try and build and it's only my second book. So let me not get too far ahead of myself. But with with the way that I write, I try and build a scaffolding so that people can see how I think. And maybe there are other weirdos out there who think the way that I think. So I don't think I don't think in linear terms, I think kind of in universal terms. And I was saying this last week somewhere, I think I was in New York, and it was just that I think tangentially very much like a mother would think, right? So when something happens, uh, thinking about being a mom, when something happens, I'm not only thinking about the thing that happens, but I'm thinking about all the things that are around it. Mm-hmm. Or before something happens, I'm thinking about the things that are around it. So if I notice the placement of a class on the table, I might tell someone, move your hand or just or 
casually move the, the, the glass forward. So it, it comes, it becomes out, it goes out of uh, elbow shot. So yes. nobody touches it. So kind of thinking ahead of time and always thinking about the universal rather than thinking about the straight line. And spatially, definitely. And, spatially. and that makes so yeah. much sense, too. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's what I do. I just kind of pull in. I'm really interested in theory, but I recognize the limits of how I understand theory. And I understand theory the way that I understand it. And so what I write is my understanding of a theory rather than trying to strictly cohere to what whoever the theorist was. I'm also trying to think about what it means to me based on my own experiences. So how is that working with your erasure poems in Bread and Circus? So when I was thinking about Adam Smith, I went on a research trip to the University of Edinburgh 2018, 2017 actually. Nope, it was 2018. And I wanted to handle his archives. I knew I wanted to write something about poverty and something about relating to this idea of the invisible hand where self-interest mm-hmm. is the thing that um, um, optimizes outcome. And I never fully believed that even as I was learning about it in the classroom. And I think I didn't believe it because I never saw that in my life. I saw something completely different. And I realized that you know, then and now I could be the anomaly, but why not pull that story forward because it is a resistance or a refusal of an existing theory that self-interest doesn't fuel uh, optimal outcomes. And how is that true? Well, it's true based on what I see in my life. So what I wanted to do was take, I always take more than one person, more than one figure, more than uh, a theorist, more than a one writer. So last my last book, it was Baudrillard and I had Wittgenstein in there and I had uh, Roland Barthes, and I had Anne Sexton. With this one, I was really interested in what would happen if you put someone who meant to or not be a high capitalist like Adam Smith, who becomes basically the <laughs> the the author of capitalism as we know it because of his magnum opus, which is The Wealth of Nations. Why did his name have to be Adam, too? And why did it have to be Adam, the first man? <laughs> yes. Come on. And then um, put him in conversation with someone who is not like that. And so then I thought, oh, Guy Debord. Yes. Put him in conversation with Guy Debord. Guy Debord. Social Marxist. Social Marxist. So Guy Debord wrote The Society of the Spectacle in 1967, founded this group called the Situation International, Situationist International. And their group was founded, it was basically a, a conglomeration of a bunch of different types of artists. But it was founded on two principles. One is detournement, which is where you get the chance to appropriate or hijack or reroute mm-hmm. a cultural artifact. And the second one is psychogeography, which in layman's terms is that you get to understand a terrain by experiencing it, walking it, mm-hmm. understanding the behaviors, the social adaptations based on the actual geography and the way that you do that. You can know the geography by actually walking it. So my thought was, well, what if the geography is your memory so you can understand your memory more clearly? And then for the detournement, what if the cultural hijacking, if you will, or the cultural uh, appropriation or rerouting of a cultural artifact are is his book and mm-hmm. Adam Smith's book because they are so far apart on the economic spectrum. Yes. And then what happens in the middle is real life. And that's where my experience comes into play. <laughs> so I have these two folks who are in opposition to each other, uh, just the- uh, ideologically, theoretically, 
And then you have this life that is kind of the practical proof of any theory's validity. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to put those three things together. It's the theory against another theory with a life in the middle. So the interstitial place is like the yeah. life lived. And the geography of memory. And the geography is, is of memory. What is tied in the original idea to the geography, the topography of the space. Exactly. And as you were explaining it, D2, I thought it was so interesting to visually let everyone know listening to, is like you were drawing the figures that also are in in, in the, your book in different mm-hmm. ways, like these graphs, these mm-hmm. spatial graphs. Mm-hmm. That's what you were, y- yeah, with your hands. with the gesticulation. Were, yeah. yeah. That's always how I learned uh, economics, by the way. I had to actually like make it real for myself in space. So I took it off of the board or off of the page and I would sketch it with my finger in air or sketch it uh, on the page and then sketch it in the air. I know I can understand things when they're in my body. And so through gesticulation, I can understand theory. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's no, it's not. It (laughs) makes total sense. And it also gives a new appreciation for what the body can do, because so often we're separating mind and body as if the mind isn't in the body and they aren't (laughs) intertwined. So what you're saying is just speaking to that as well. Like it makes sense that we could understand or be it um, in the body. In yeah. a way that our mind would not have access to without the body. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe that's a hope we have with um, maybe enjoying AI instead of thinking of <laughs> it's, it's taking exactly. words taking, away or taking, taking ideas away. And yeah. Craft and yeah. art. Exactly. Shout out to the Striking Writers Guild. And, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And everyone who is striking right now. You know, Absolutely. Unions everywhere. <laughs> okay. Right. Now I'm right. on a tangent. <laughs> well, there's a way to integrate it so that it is it doesn't interfere. But I don't think that we've struck that balance yet. We don't know how to do that. We We have these replacement theories. We think we can replace one thing with another thing. The question is, how do you make it like a community? How do you make it intertwined so one helps the other? And with everything we can do, why are we so... We're failing on this. Right. And we're moving in the opposite direction exponentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to take a break because we're at the halfway mark, I think. And so let's hear another one of the songs that Dee chose for today's Living Writers. Bread and Circus, Era D. Matthews is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Never say 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Ara D. Matthews is here in person in the studio. It's no. so, it so warms my heart to say it. <laughs> Bread and Circus, her fantastic book of poems here on the table with us. And we'll hear more ahead. Um, but first, maybe a word about Prince. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I love Prince. And I don't use the past tense when I'm talking about Prince because I have I refuse to accept the fact that he's gone. In fact, I was working here at Michigan when I found out that he passed away and I had to leave work early. I was like, oh, I can't continue on with the day if Prince is not in this world somewhere. Uh, I oh. loved Prince. I just have these memories, you know, like I, I grew up in the 80s and we were all latchkey kids. And I lived in this apartment building, and there were four apartments in the building in that, that I lived in. There were a bunch of apartments, but every building had like four units. And there was a boy that lived upstairs. His name was Stevie. There was a girl who lived across the hall. Her name was Maria. And then there was my sister and I in our apartment. And we would congregate in the hallway and listen to music because our parents, you know, we were all sing they were all from single parents. My they were all mothers. So all of our mothers were working. And we'd go sit in the hallway, form this kind of ragtag group of of teenagers, preteens, really, who loved listening to music. So we had these huge boom boxes, slipped a cassette in, and somebody had Prince and put him when the doves cry. And that was followed quickly by Darling Nikki, which is yes. one of those controversial songs <laughs> but that I listened to that I'm sure that Tipper Gore was not happy about because it was oh, like that one was of the that time with the, exactly. the stickers slapped exactly. on album covers. You had to get stickers slapped on album covers because of the parental advisory. Yeah. And then they were so much better. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just like so we sat in the hallway and listened to this cassette on repeat for hours yeah. just sitting there talking kicking it we all finished our it, homework it's one of the best albums ever it's it's a it, brilliant album it is. it's a brilliant Man. album and the thing about this song is that he wrote it in less than a day it's a filler he had to fill out that album and the record company was like you need like another song on the on the so he wrote when the doves cry and in less than a day like and with all the instrumentals. Because he plays, I he think, plays all the everything. tracks and then produce it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it was like that time constraint. And he created this like beautiful, it's that genius. lasts through the ages, this beautiful piece of music that lasts through the ages. Like you can't, you can listen to the song right now and have the same, I will listen yes. to it right now and have the same feeling that I had back in 1984. Yeah. It, it, it takes you there so like viscerally, but then you're also here with knowing that it's, it's not something of the past. It's of the moment, like you're saying. Yeah. But it also brings you back to this other time. Yeah. And you, yeah. yeah. And I think it's helpful that there's a good memory that's associated with the entire album. Oh, yeah. Right? The yeah. memory of being in community with these other lovely souls yeah. who were around the same age and who were in the same predicament. And that's how we bonded. We bonded over music and listening groups in the hallway of our apartment building. Yeah. You know, just sitting there until our parents got home. And so, and okay, so when doves cry, mm -hmm. it's this, it has this memory attached to it. And that's also in conversation with the book. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's very much about re relationships and, and pain mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and mothers and fathers. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Is that why you, you chose, what? For sure. <laughs> There's no doubt. I mean, that he wrote, when I was listening to, when I first listened to the song, I just felt 
there was this familiar feeling that he's speaking to my experience in some way. Dig, if you will, the picture. You are now engaged in a kiss. The sweat of your body covers me. Can you, my darling, can you picture this? And then, you know, it's kind of like that fault, that haze of memory that happens in those lyrics. And then he was talking about his mother. She's never satisfied. Um, it just, I understood, you know, it's like, yes, there's a space where you can actually still love the subject but still be honest about the subject, mm, yeah. you know, and that song kind of gave me those permissions. Even back then, I didn't, you know, recognize them or utilize them until later in life. But yeah, yeah. But you could see that understanding happening within. Yeah, it young. was the honesty. Yeah, yeah, it was like, oh, wow, you can you can write these songs that are honest about your experience. Still love, but write these songs that are honest about your experience. And you can write these poems. And I can write these poems that are honest about my experience. Yeah. Your your experience as a black woman, mm-hmm. as a poet, as a mother, as a... And so many things. Mm-hmm. Like as a United States citizen mm-hmm. who also found out that you have mm-hmm. family from Sicily. Yeah. <laughs> like all of these things. <laughs> right. And very political as well. Right. Right? right. All, all Everything is... Um, is there a, a poem that you feel like you might want to read now, D, that you feel like this is a poem where you can love, um, like what, what you just said, basically, this idea that you can write about difficult things and still love them? Yeah. I think it was, um, I'm going to read Elegy for the Moner, 2016. So one of the things that I recognized was that for a really long time I was terribly angry with my family um my my dad in particular because I felt abandoned by him and it wasn't until I was older when I realized that that wasn't actually abandonment that was a gift uh you would have been negatively impacted by his presence more than you would his absence and but that realization didn't come to me until later so I was very angry for the longest time And then his social worker, my father died of AIDS in 1996, and his social worker called us, my mom, because she was his spouse on record, although they had been divorced for many years, and said, we we think he's dying. You should probably come down to the hospital. And so this picks up after after he actually died. After 20 years of gathering dust, it's time to remove the urn from the cabinet and put him beneath proper ground. There's a small problem of not having a pine box for the body made smaller by not having his body at all. Hell, I don't have a choir to sing riffs and not one pastor to eulogize. I abandoned hat feathers and black church theatrics to settle on myrrh kindling and mindful mantras. Although I concede, burials should be an occasion of final rites, pomp and happenstance, if you will, with at least one moaner who may or may not miss the departed, and so... I gather alone. With a shovel in my backyard and his needle in my forethought, I offer earth what I have. These brick pavers, his cheap urn, the memory of my sister's fist through our front door window, and the gentle way he sobered to wrap her paw in an old shirt. The tin lunchbox in which he, high, captured the rabbit bat that bit me while I slept. Except it wasn't a bat at all, but a wren. Imagine a grown man chasing a bird just to say he finally caught something elusive. 
Thankfully, that bat spell took. The bird flew. We fled. I lived. We all lived for a while, at least until we didn't. I am now miles from where he spoke his last words. Even God left. I'm only. Understood. If the reaper RSVPs, men wait at the forked road with fresh-baked chaff grown over many summers. Bounty cut lovely, dross shot up. Fool hands won't notice Lucifer manages the silo, his barter's larcenous. I once... I once loathed the blind risks that made men harvest pulse and bet full stalk, laid odds against gains and harbored spite of ill gambles, but loss humbles, hindsight mellows, since my double down with rage never once paid, never once raised my father from any grave. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. The anger goes away eventually and is replaced by something else. And sometimes it's numbness. But most times it's it's just a gratitude to have been on a journey with another human being, whatever that journey is. Mm-hmm. It's a recognition. I don't even say gratitude. It's a recognition of having been on a journey with someone else. Perhaps it'll fade into gratitude maybe it won't but rage doesn't serve it only hurt me honestly to be mad at him for so long i think there's another part in the in bread and circus Mm -hmm. where you have a scene where you're with him at his bedside Mm -hmm. yes and so so you even in your rage you still went when that social worker called i did I did. I was the first one to go there. My sister wasn't ready to go. My mother wasn't even sure why she was called to go. And so I went there and he had these, uh, he, the way that the virus affected him was that he got brain, he, he had brain lesions. And so he was in and out of lucidity. He could not, he couldn't remember. He couldn't, there was a lot of things that he lost memory being one of them. But he had these incredible moments of lucidity while I was sitting there. And I kept contemplating, should I just get up and go? Like, can he even remember me? But he did. And I thought that that was just split seconds of recognition. But I thought that was uh, that was kind of a gift from the gods. For both of you. For and both of us, yeah. Because for him, it gives him... I can only say this in um, reading your book of poems the sense of the story mm-hmm. D, so I don't know what it gives him mm-hmm. but for my in the sense of the story it gives him a way of saying he's sorry to you exactly exactly it was his death was the only way that he probably would have contacted us because um, he hadn't finished living the life that he wanted to live which was on the streets uh, and he was homeless at the time that he was he was he was uh, put inside the um, the hospital. And he was hospitalized. He was homeless. So it was a moment of recognition, and it was a moment of reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. When when you're when you're writing these poems, they're they're next. You choose to have this group of poems is bread and circus Mm -hmm. and when you're making the work d is it are you 
are you trusting the part that these poems are coming together at different times and mm-hmm. it is of a time and then you see the relationship or the relational aspect of them and is that why they're together because they are there are things that are very different even like the visual qualities of the poems sure. are so different For you know sure. which is why i am very much as i've said earlier <laughs> I love your book. Um, But, like, how do you know that you want these to be together? I don't. That's the thing. Like, that's the mystery of it all. When I was writing these, I wasn't thinking I was writing toward a cohesive manuscript Mm -hmm. or a book. I just thought that these were one-off poems. There was something I needed to say, so I said it in a poem. There was something I wanted to write about, so maybe I wrote some a longer form, or I wrote prose. But... I, I didn't know. It took me it took me a while because some of these are older poems, so it took me a while to understand the thread and that always happens to me. I'll write, I'll produce, I'll practice, but I won't know what I'm writing toward until mm. later. And that's the mystery of it. Yeah. Yeah. I surprise myself. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Let's take a break. Today on Living Writers, Erid Matthews is here, Bread and Circus, the book on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. back. If you're just tuning in, you're just in time today on Living Writers. Era D. Matthews is here. Just got to hear some Coltrane, which always does the Yay. heart good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Why Coltrane today? Yeah. So um, another influence, like that Prince level influence for me, particularly as it related to structuring this book. So I have a really good friend. Her name is Shami Ali Naeem. She's a musician. She's also a poet. Oh, and, and she's going to be in Detroit with you. Yes. On yes, June yes. 29th, I think. Uh, no, not on June 29th. Oh, We're June... going out on tour together in the oh. fall. Oh, okay. But yes, yes. <laughs> she's a very close friend, has, is a very big supporter of my work, and is one of my like early readers. And so as I was talking to her about structuring the book, she was like, I think you need to listen to some Coltrane. And so I listened to Coltrane on, I listened to Love Supreme on repeat. And one of the things I love to pull into any book is um, the idea of musical structure. I think music and poetry, a part of poetry is music. And so I think a, a lot of the structures of music 
translate well into poems. There's a one form of poetry. There's a particular form that I'm thinking about, which is the count- contrapuntal, which is based on the counterpoint in music, where there's there's uh, there's one point being made, and then there's another point being made, and then you make the points together, and it's a whole new thing. And so that's what the contrapuntal does. You kind of get these three-in-one poems, where you get a right-hand poem and a left-hand poem and a poem that's read together. And also, connecting back to what you said earlier, Dee, how you were thinking of even... Um, uh, Adam Smith and exactly. Iggy and the life in the middle. The life in the middle. Yeah, exactly. So the so contrapuntal <laughs> gives you that life in the middle. Exactly right. And so I'm I'm fascinated by that concept. And the the other thing about Coltrane was that uh, he was an incredible. He had an incredible spirit about him. So there was something about his music that wasn't just for entertainment. There was some there was a spiritual journey that he was on. And in Love Supreme he used the through composition. So I was like, "Oh, through composition. What does that mean?" The through composition is basically a rhetorical progression. So if you listen to Love Supreme all the way through, there are four different parts and those are the sections. Those that's how I section the book. There's acknowledgement, there's resolution, there's pursuance, and then there's psalms. Of course. So a love supreme makes its way into the book because I use that concept of the through composition to weave these kind of stories together so that I can rhetorically be on a rhetorical progression. Um, And the idea is that it's non... Um, It's usually not a series, but there is a sense that every single... Every independent overture has a different instrument that moves forward. Like you can hear a different instrument moving forward in acknowledgement than you might hear in Psalms. And I wanted to have that kind of tone. I wanted to strike that tone in the book. So thank God for friends who are really knowledgeable about music. I also have a friend who's a musicologist who he went here, got his PhD from here. Um, John Edward Towski, and he helped me to think through the through composition too. So yeah, it's just, I wanted to use through composition. I know Coltrane used through composition for Love Supreme. I loved the sections of Love Supreme. So it's like, yes, I will use that. I will absolutely use that in the book because it made sense. But it also gave me structure for taking all of these poems and making them their own stories. So each section really is its own independent story and can be read independently. You don't have to read the book from the front to the back. You can decide to read the third section and the fourth section and then come back to the first and second section. Um, And you lose a bit of the progression if you do that, but there's still the idea that you can have your own experience. And so it's just the same thing with Love Supreme. You can listen to Psalms. You can listen to Pursuance without listening to Acknowledgement and Resolution. But the the experience comes when you listen from acknowledgement all the way through Psalm. And so that's that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book. Um, so Coltrane is a, a, is a huge inspiration for me. Uh, and he has good Philadelphia roots, too. So that helped a lot. Mm. Yeah. It's the right, yeah. the right moment. Exactly. The right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What, when you, when you were then finding which was the, um, the story that was coming forward in each of mm-hmm. these sections. Mm-hmm. What what would you say? What is? Can you can you tell us the arc? Tell tell the sure. architecture of, of that. So when you think about acknowledgement, it's kind of acknowledging your origin. So acknowledgement really starts the origin story, and then resolution 
kind of puts an end to, it ends the origin story. So it, at the death of a parent, there is some degree of ending of the origin. And so it goes from acknowledgement to resolution to pursuance. What is pursuance? Pursuance is solidly in the present. Pursuance is where you're moving towards some goal, but you're very much in the present, and it's where you are right now. And then psalm is um, kind of that spiritual awakening, that spiritual transformation. All of that gets me this. Mm -hmm. And that's how Coltrane kind of saw those sections as well, I think, right? I think there is the origin, there's a resolution to the origin, there's the present, and then there is what is there to be grateful for in all of this experience? And that's where the psalm comes in. So that's what I was thinking about. And so all of these poems came at different times. I, I was in different situations. I wasn't, they weren't, they didn't all, obviously, they never co come all at one time. Like, God bless the person who can do that. But, <laughs> you know, over the course of a decade, they came to me. And then I just had the opportunity to think about where... They fit, you know, like it's kind of moving the universal. I said I talked about earlier, like I don't really deal with linearity in that way. I deal with the universal, but the universal still needs some degree of temporality in order to make sense. And because so everything's in relationship. Really. Everything's in so. relationship. So it's thinking about the connectivity. How do all these things connect? And it could be beauty. It could be it could be music. It could be. It could be Coltrane, it could be Prince. Your it spirit. Spirit. It could be anything. You know, it's all of those things are important in the making of a person or a book. So, yeah, that's kind of how I yeah. thought about it. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a journey. It took a long time. Structure is, structure makes me feel safe in poems. I know everybody has their thing. Some like Greg Orr talked about the four temperaments of poetry. There could be story, there can be structure, there can be music, and there can be imagination. And then you typically have a primary temperament. And for me, I always thought my primary temperament was music, but come to find out my primary temperament is structure because I'm always thinking about the foundation, how to build a solid mm -hmm. foundation because I didn't have a solid foundation growing up, so I'm moving toward that in order to feel safe. And my poems allow me to do that, allow me to move them around inside of a house so that I can feel safe with them out in the world. And value that. You and know that, that that's a value. Yeah. It's not to be taken for granted. Exactly. It's ex exactly right. I just recognize that that is just where I am. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I saw you ready to, you know, no. primed for a question no, and I no. interrupted. Well, it's no, not at all. You know, <laughs> this is, this is, um, I interrupt you and don't want to. Um, I, I think it's interesting to, to think that eviction mm -hmm. is the last title. Um, it's the last two titles on equilibrium and then eviction mm -hmm. and thinking about the structure because now you're bringing it home. This is ending for the moment. And what the the poet is aware that this is what the reader is. Like you have the reader, if they've been along with you since the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's okay to, it's okay to let it go. The, the mm -hmm. eviction has to do, and having been evicted in early part of my life, um, from different places, it uh, it's it, it, 
sure, it can be traumatizing, but there's also recognition that it's time to move on. You know, it's time to let go. And I thought about, obviously, I was thinking about Adam because of Adam Smith. So then I started thinking about, oh, go back to the beginning, the origin story. And so I wrote a fiction. Because Eve's, Eve's here. Eve's in there. Yeah. Yeah. May I read it? I would love that. Do you mind? I do not mind. Were you going to read this one? Were you going to? Is this the one you were going to read? I, I'm happy to read this one. What were you going to read? I was going to read Nevertheless, but I'm happy to read Eviction because it makes sense. It does make sense. Okay. Dear. And I started, I want to say I started this after Wisława Zimborska, who wrote Lot's Wife. Um, there's a beautiful poem that she wrote about Lot's wife and how when she turned back, she turned to stone, but it was kind of trying to recount what she might have seen as she was looking back. Uh-huh. Eviction for Wisława. As if I created this pyramid of obey and exist, between the breath-turned stairs of others also exiled, and those who called me all but my name, I nearly forgot that I could, unlike Lot's wife, glance back for the answers, th- some threads of truth where memory faltered. In sooth, that snake was not a reptile. The fruit of good and evil was a flower of wasps, not an apple. I was less inbred rib, more accurately unbred. Love was often anguished and paradise looked like anybody's milkweed garden. I didn't beg Adam's pardon and never asked, why me, O oh Lord? No proverbs would suffice when Genesis is what is and was what was. I looked instead to the present as the past cracked underfoot, lowered into riverbeds. The waters rose below and leagues above flaming vines enveloped the stairs to heaven glister by glister. Due east, fly ash blanketed each morning glory I named in light, pocked the night flocks perfumed distant moons ago. I vowed from the eye of that reckoning, fates among eaves would not be the same. If one sister is silenced into salt without body that remembers, then I will batter, batter my symbols, bearing witness for us both, with what body still remains. It's so triumphant. It is. It's all about the witness. All of life is about the witness. We have a, we all of us have a testimony. It's okay to tell it because it might help somebody else. Who knows? And there's triumph in it. And there's triumph. In the telling. And there's triumph in the telling. There's triumph in the telling. We win in the end, you know? Thanks for being here, Dee. Thanks <laughs> Thank for being you, here. Dee. Today on Living Writers, Era Dee Matthews, her book, Bread and Circus. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. You are tuned in to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. You're listening to Drum Break. I'm your host, DJ Free Jazz. And I got a nice 30 minutes of intelligent drum and bass coming up for you. 
Stay tuned.